Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. The drive from Montreal to New Hampshire was a long one. But Betty Hill didn't mind. She and her husband Barney were returning from a belated honeymoon, and being together was the only thing that mattered. The radio was on low, and the song Hurt, which was a big hit that week in 1961, played softly in the background. It was 10.30 p.m. on September 19th, and the couple expected to make it back to their home in Portsmouth by 2 a.m., The Hills were a hard-working couple, so they were grateful to have had the time away. Betty was a social worker who specialized in child welfare cases, and Barney was a postal worker. In addition to their full-time jobs, the couple frequently volunteered at their local church. As an interracial couple, Barney was black and Betty was white, the Hills were passionate about the growing civil rights movement, and both were members of the NAACP. As they slowly made their way closer to home, it was Betty who first noticed the strange bright light in the sky. The night was crystal clear, so there were plenty of stars out, but the light didn't appear to be a star or a planet. Not only was it brighter than the other stars, it was moving upward. It started from a place just below the half-full moon, moved up and to the left, then stayed there. Betty pointed the light out to Barney, As a World War II veteran and plane enthusiast, he didn't think very much of it at first. Over the previous four years, more than 50 satellites had been launched into space. Seeing one traversing the night sky was becoming more common, so he thought that the light might be a satellite that had somehow gone off course. As they drove down the dark, twisting, winding roads of the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the light grew larger and brighter and actually seemed to be following them. As they neared a scenic picnic area just south of Twin Mountains, Betty told her husband to pull into the rest stop so they could take a closer look and so they could take their dog, Delcy, for a walk. The couple had binoculars with them from their trip, so while Barney walked the dog, Betty watched the object as it moved across the face of the moon. It appeared to be some sort of a craft with a band of red, amber, green, and blue flashing lights running around it. She called Barney over to take a look and handed him the binoculars. He agreed that it did seem to be an aircraft, but he thought it must be a commercial airline traveling towards Vermont, possibly on its way to Montreal. But when the object began descending rapidly in their direction, he quickly realized that what they were looking at was no commercial airline. The couple returned to their car and began driving toward Franconia Notch, a major mountain pass that cuts through the White Mountains. They continued driving on the narrow, isolated road and observed that the object was moving closer and closer. At one point, they saw it pass over a restaurant, then over a signal tower on top of Cannon Mountain. 
Betty later said that the object was rotating and that it was at least one and a half times the length of the granite cliff it passed over, which was 40 feet long. This strangely illuminated object was totally silent, and as they drove, the couple continued to watch as it moved erratically, bouncing back and forth in the night sky. When they reached Route 3 in Lincoln, the object suddenly began descending toward their vehicle, forcing Barney to stop in the middle of the highway. As the strange object sat hovering about a hundred feet above their car, they could now see that it was definitely some sort of a huge craft. The light pattern they had seen before had turned from blinking multicolored lights to a solid band of glowing white light. The craft was so large that it filled the entire view of their windshield. Barney later said that it was as big as a jet, but as flat as a pancake. He estimated its size at between 60 and 80 feet in diameter. In an interview, Betty described the craft. You know the old-fashioned straw hats that men used to wear, she said, the kind with a flat crown and a brim? That's what it looked like, and along one side it had a big, big picture window with dividers in it. Betty exited the car and the object suddenly shifted position. It was now hovering over the treetops in an adjacent field. Barney opened the car's trunk and took out a pistol that he had concealed there. Still holding the binoculars and with the gun now in his pants pocket, Barney walked to the edge of the field, stopped, and put the binoculars up to his eyes. There, peering out of the craft's windows, were between eight and eleven humanoid figures. All were wearing glossy black uniforms with black caps, and they seemed to be looking straight at him. Barney would later report to an investigator from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena that the beings were somehow not human. As he continued looking at the craft through his binoculars, all but one of the figures moved back toward the rear wall of the hallway that encircled the front of the craft. Now, just one figure remained at the window, and it continued to stare at Barney. Then it communicated a telepathic message that said, Stay where you are and keep looking. Two red lights at the end of fin-like structures began emerging out of the sides of the craft, and a long structure or beam of light came out of the bottom. The silent craft then tilted downward and began descending to within 300 feet away from Barney and between 50 and 80 feet overhead. The strange figure in the window continued to stare at him, then telepathically instructed him to put down his binoculars. Barney did so, but took out his pistol to protect himself. He tried to raise the gun at the object, but found that his arm was totally paralyzed. Barney ran back to the car and in a near hysterical state yelled to his wife, They're going to capture us! Then he jumped in the still idling car and watched as the object began to move closer and closer. Now it hovered directly above the car. Barney threw the car into gear, raced out of the rest area, and drove away at high speed. He told Betty to look for the object, so she rolled down her window and looked up. Although it was a clear night and the moon was nearly half full, all she could see overhead was blackness, as if something huge was blocking her view of the sky. A few minutes later, they heard a series of strange rhythmic beeping sounds that sounded as if they were striking the trunk of their car. 
Then without warning, the entire car began to vibrate and the hills felt a tingling sensation pass through their bodies. As these pulsing, beeping sounds continued, they both felt as if they had entered a strange, altered state of consciousness that dulled both their minds and their senses. After what felt like just a few minutes later, a second series of beep sounds returned the couple to full consciousness. Although it felt as if just a few minutes had passed, they suddenly found themselves driving on a different road. Somehow, they had driven nearly 35 miles, but they had only indistinct, spotty memories of the trip. The only thing they could remember was a vague recollection of coming up against a roadblock and of having to make a sudden, sharp turn to avoid hitting it. They also remembered seeing some sort of a fiery red-orange orb in the middle of the road, but they had no other memories. Although they had planned on being home by 2 a.m., the couple arrived home shortly after 5 a.m., and Barney commented that the trip took much longer than he had expected. It turned out that they had lost at least two hours' time. Betty and Barney entered their home, turned on the lights, then went over to the window and looked skyward. This is the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me, Barney said. As they tried to make sense of the experience, they both wondered if the strange craft would find them at their house and come for them. Although they knew that something had happened to them, they didn't understand exactly what it was. Oddly, at first, they weren't frightened or agitated by the experience. Betty later wrote, We felt very calm, peaceful, and relaxed. We sat at the kitchen table, looked at each other, shook our heads in amazement, and asked each other, Do you believe what happened? We agreed that it was unbelievable, but that it had really happened. Whatever happened to the couple during those missing hours had caused them to feel contaminated. Barney told his wife that he felt clammy, so he took a shower. When he finished, Betty also showered while Barney got their luggage from the car. She called out to him to leave the bags on the porch, and he agreed that it was probably a good idea. Then they got into bed and tried to get some sleep. After sleeping for just a few hours, Betty woke up and got out of bed. She placed the shoes and clothing she had worn during the drive into her closet. Her dress had been in perfect condition when she had put it on before the trip home but it was now badly torn in several places. There was a one-inch tear in the thick zipper fabric and a two-inch tear in the stitching at the top of the dress. It was torn from the waist to the hemline, and the hem itself was torn down on one side. Although Betty had no memory of how the dress had gotten this way, for some reason she didn't make much of it. She simply went back to bed and fell asleep. When the couple awoke the next morning, they talked about what had happened and tried to make some sense of it. In order to determine that they both had the same experience, Barney suggested that they go into separate rooms and draw the object that they had observed. After they had completed their drawings, they compared them. The two drawings were remarkably similar in detail. They also tried to reconstruct the chronology of events from the time they first saw the UFO until they arrived home, but their memories of the missing two hours were nearly blank. The last thing they could remember was the beeping sound that seemed to usher them into a strange state of consciousness, then hearing them again and finding that they were driving on a new road. Barney said that they should never tell anyone what had happened to them. The experience they had was so fantastic so bizarre, 
that he was afraid that no one would believe them. But Betty disagreed. She thought that they had to tell someone, but she wasn't sure who. Later that afternoon, Barney told his wife that he had a feeling that they were still around. Betty agreed with him, and the couple began watching the skies again. Throughout the day, they would go to the windows and look up, go to the back porch and look up, but they didn't see anything unusual. It was beginning to rain, so Barney brought the bags in from the porch and began unpacking. He discovered that the leather strap for the binoculars was torn in half, though he couldn't remember tearing it. He also noticed that the toes of his shoes were scuffed and scraped as if they had been dragged along the ground. The couple also discovered that both their watches had stopped working. Little did they know these watches would never work again. Betty took the dress out of the closet and noticed that it was covered with a pink powdery substance. This pink powder had discolored much of the dress and degraded the fiber. When it stopped raining, she hung it on the clothesline and the pink powder blew away. After taking the dress off the line, she decided that it was irreparably damaged, so she threw it away. She later changed her mind, retrieved the dress from the garbage can, and hung it back in her closet. Whatever had happened to the couple during the missing time period may have included a suggestion that they remain calm, but that feeling was starting to wear off. For some inexplicable reason, Barney couldn't shake the feeling that parts of his body just didn't feel right. Barney was becoming more agitated, and Betty was beginning to feel uneasy, so she decided to confide in her sister Janet. She thought that her sister was the one person she could tell her story to without ridicule because she too had seen a UFO in the mid-1950s. When Betty called her sister, she listened carefully, then told Betty that she would check around and call her back. Janet's neighbor was a physicist, so she called him for advice. She also asked a family friend who was a former chief of police what he thought the couple should do. He said that they should call Pease Air Force Base and report the sighting. Janet called Betty back and told her where to report the incident. She also told her that the physicist suggested that she use a compass to conduct an experiment. He said that she should walk around the car while holding the compass near its surface to see if there were any unusual readings. Betty asked Barney to come with her to do the experiment, but he refused, saying that he just wanted to forget what had happened to them so she went outside and tried it herself. She walked slowly around the car, but the compass needle remained steady. When she got to the trunk area, she saw over a dozen highly polished circular marks on its surface. Each was about the size of a half dollar or a silver dollar, and she was certain that these hadn't been on the car before their trip. She placed the compass over each of them and was shocked to see the needle spinning around and around. She then placed the compass directly on one of the spots and took her hand away. The needle spun wildly and continued to do so until she took the compass away from that area of the trunk. Instead of being fascinated or puzzled by what she was seeing, Betty was filled with an inexplainable feeling of absolute terror. Barney was initially reluctant to have anything to do with the experiment, but after Betty told him what she discovered, he asked his upstairs neighbors to come down and take a look, hoping that having a witness would prove that the couple wasn't just making this up. 
The neighbors saw the strange markings on the car, and they also tried the experiment with the compass. Each witnessed the compass needle spinning wildly as they approached the bright spots on the car. The following day, Janet and her family came over to the house to take a look at the car. They saw the strange circular spots, and their experiments with the compass yielded the same results. Betty and Barney also showed them the watches that had stopped working. On September 21st, Betty phoned Pease Air Force Base to report an unidentified flying object. She and Barney gave the interviewing officer a detailed description of the craft they had seen, but Barney didn't mention seeing the humanoid figures. He was afraid that if he told them about the craft's occupants and about the nonverbal communication he had with them, they might think he was crazy. Later that day, they received a call from Major Paul W. Henderson, who questioned both of them extensively. For some reason, he seemed particularly interested in the wing-like structures with the red lights that emerged from each side of the craft. He obviously had taken their story very seriously, and it was clear that the Air Force was aware of the existence of unidentified flying objects. The Major later called back and asked the Hills if they would retell their story while the call was monitored. They agreed, but were never told who was listening in on the call. The Hills report would eventually end up in Project Blue Book, a U.S. Air Force program that investigated reports of unidentified flying objects from 1947 until 1969. An interesting additional item was included in the Hills report. It told of another UFO sighting that occurred at 2.15 a.m. on September 20th, the same morning the couple had their encounter. Like the craft that Betty and Barney saw, this one also had a band of lights running around it. But the most fascinating thing about the report was that the witness said that V-shaped wings with red lights on their tips emerged from the sides of the craft. It seems that some kind of cover-up had already begun as a page having to do with air intercept radar was removed from the report. This shows that a UFO was most likely pursued by U.S. aircraft on September 20th. Even though Major Henderson seemed to believe the hills and another similar craft was spotted that same morning, his report initially said that they most likely misidentified the planet Jupiter. The wording was later changed to say that there was insufficient data to tell what they had really seen. Ten days after the UFO encounter, Betty began having vivid dreams about the incident. She had never had such intense, detailed dreams in her life. In one, she and Barney were forced to stop their car because of a roadblock. The car was surrounded by a group of men in uniforms, and two of the men walked the couple through a path in the woods. She noticed that the men were very short, around 5 feet to 5 feet 4 inches tall. They wore matching blue uniforms with caps that reminded Betty of the type worn by military cadets. They appeared nearly human, with black hair and dark eyes. She noticed that they had prominent noses and that their lips were bluish and their skin gray. In the dream, the couple walked up a ramp onto a metallic craft. Once inside, they were led to separate rooms and a physical exam was conducted. 
The examiner told Betty that the tests were designed to distinguish the differences between humans and the occupants of the spacecraft. The man cut off a lock of Betty's hair, examined her eyes, ears, mouth, teeth, and throat, and he carefully examined her hands and feet and seemed particularly interested in the structure of her fingers and toes. He collected trimmings from her fingernails and took a skin sample by scraping her arm with a dull blade. The next part of the exam was frightening and painful. The man pushed a long needle into her navel, which caused Betty agonizing pain. Noticing her extreme discomfort, a man she recognized as the leader waved his hands in front of her eyes and the pain vanished. When the examiner left the room, Betty had a conversation with the ship's leader. At one point, she searched for something to take with her to prove that she wasn't losing her mind. She picked up a large book that was filled with long, narrow rows of strange symbols. The leader said that she could take the book with her, and he handed it to her. When Betty asked where he and his craft came from, he pulled a map out of an opening in the wall. The map was dotted with stars, some brighter and larger than others. After this, the men escorted the couple from the ship, but a disagreement broke out between the leader and the other men on the ship. He told Betty that she couldn't keep the book because they had decided that they didn't want her or Barney to remember what had happened to them during their encounter. The couple were then taken to their car and told to wait until the craft departed before they could resume their drive. Betty's dreams continued for five successive nights, then stopped abruptly and never returned. Sometime in November of 1961, a strange, totally unexplainable incident occurred at the couple's home. They had been out exploring the White Mountains area where they had sighted the UFO, and when they arrived home, they unlocked the back door and entered the kitchen. There, in the center of the kitchen table, was a pile of dry brown leaves. Thinking that someone must have broken in, they immediately checked all of the doors and windows, but they were locked. When they began clearing away the leaves, they both gasped in amazement. Lying under the pile of leaves was a pair of Betty's blue earrings, the same earrings she had been wearing in the night of the UFO encounter that matched the blue dress she had been wearing. She hadn't even realized that they had been missing and hadn't thought about them since she put them on the morning of September 19th. Betty wrote about the incident in her diary, saying that when she saw the earrings, tears ran down her face. She went to her bedroom, put them in her jewelry box, and never wore them again. The couple wondered if someone might have somehow entered their home without a key, and if the earrings were a clue as to what had occurred during the period of missing time. In the summer of 1962, Barney began seeing a psychiatrist to help with his exhaustion and anxiety. But he didn't associate the way he was feeling with his encounter with the UFO, and for nearly a year it didn't come up during his therapy sessions. When he finally did mention the UFO encounter, the doctor referred him to Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known Boston psychiatrist and neurologist. He also happened to be a skilled hypnotist. On December 14, 1963, Betty and Barney met with Dr. Simon for a consultation. By the end of the meeting, Simon was convinced that the couple genuinely believed that they had encountered a UFO, 
and that they had communicated with its occupants, but he didn't believe that their experience was in any way related to extraterrestrials. He was skeptical about the existence of aliens, but he hoped that hypnosis would help the Hills remember what happened to them during the two-hour period of lost time, and that it would help them get to the root of its cause. An extensive series of hypnosis sessions began on February 22, 1964. Simon hypnotized Betty and Barney in separate, soundproof rooms. Under hypnosis, Barney was able to remember seeing a craft that maneuvered in ways that was impossible for any conventional aircraft to fly. He said that it would quickly move straight up in a vertical line, then fly horizontally for a while before suddenly dipping down again. Barney remembered looking at the craft through binoculars in a field, then breaking the strap when he ran back to the car. He said that as soon as he started driving again, he had the sudden urge to pull off the highway and onto a dirt road. After driving for a short time, he saw six men standing in the road. When the car suddenly stalled, three of them approached it. But these weren't ordinary men. They were some strange kind of non-humans that Barney described as having a large cranium and the chin was very small. Barney repeatedly tried to start the car, but the engine wouldn't turn over. Telepathically, the beings told him not to be afraid and to close his eyes. Barney was obsessed with the creature's eyes. He said, All I see are those eyes. I'm even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. He said that the beings often stared into his eyes and described the sensation as being terrifying and hypnotic. Barney said that his legs felt paralyzed and that two of the creatures supported him as he and Betty were led to the ship. He also recalled his feet bumping against something as he was taken aboard the craft. This suggests that he was being supported by creatures shorter than himself and that the toes of his shoes were scuffed as they were dragged along the ground. This validates Betty's hypnotic memory of looking back at Barney as they were being led to the craft and seeing that he appeared to be asleep. She recalled that one man was on either side of him and that they were leading him along the path. She said that she kept calling out to him to wake up, but he wouldn't listen to her. Under hypnosis, Barney said that when he and Betty were taken onto the craft, they were separated. He was led into a room and examined on a rectangular table. He said that he kept his eyes closed during much of the abduction and physical examination because he was afraid. Although Barney's memory of the exam was fragmented, he remembered that the creatures took skin samples by scraping his skin. One of the creatures examined his spine and for some reason seemed very interested in his vertebrae. The last thing he remembered was being led away from the ship to his car where he and Betty watched as the craft took off and flew away. The information gathered from Betty's hypnosis sessions was similar to the five dreams she had had about the incident, though her description of the creature's physical characteristics differed slightly from the way she saw them in her dream. Under hypnosis, she said that there seemed to be at least three different types of creatures aboard the ship. One type was around three and a half feet tall. They were barrel-chested and had sturdy-looking bodies with thick necks and broad shoulders. Their hands had four stubby fingers and a thumb. 
The creature's eyes were slanted and extended around the sides of the face, which was wide at the cheek area and tapered down to a small, weak chin. The top of their skulls was large, and instead of ears, there were just holes on the sides of their heads. She described their noses as being broad, flat, and small, and their mouths appeared to be thin, wide slits. The other crew members looked different. They were about four and a half feet tall and had more human-like shaped heads. Their facial features were similar to the smaller creatures, but their skin was more bumpy in appearance than smooth. The one Betty called the leader was around five feet tall and closely resembled a human, though he too had a triangular-shaped face that tapered down to a very small chin and a small mouth and nose. Under hypnosis, Betty provided details about the equipment that was used during her examination, which was conducted by one of the creatures she called the examiner. She described one machine that looked like a microscope, but with a large lens. She also said that the needle that was inserted into her navel had a wire coming out of it and that it was for a pregnancy test. She described the needle as being about six inches long, and she said that when the examiner quickly thrust it into her, it was unbearably painful. In her dream, the examiner telepathically alleviated the pain, but under hypnosis, Betty said that the pain continued long after the needle was removed. At this point of the hypnosis session, Betty was in physical agony. She was so agitated and emotional that tears were running down her face, so Dr. Simon quickly ended the session. In a later session, Betty remembered something rather humorous that happened at the end of their time on the craft. When her examination was finished, the leader told her that Barney's exam wasn't finished yet. All of a sudden, there was a noise in the hall, and a small group came in along with the examiner. He asked Betty to open her mouth, and he started pulling on her teeth. The examiner told her that they couldn't figure out why Barney's teeth came out of his mouth, but hers didn't. She had to explain to them that Barney had dentures. They were really puzzled by this, so she tried to explain what dentures were. This led to a conversation where Betty told them that humans age, which was something that the aliens seemed to have no concept of. During another hypnosis session, Betty drew a picture of the star map she had seen. The map was covered with a multitude of stars, but she drew just those that were clearest in her memory. Twelve bright stars connected to one another by solid and broken lines, and three dimmer stars that formed a triangle. The leader told her that the lines connecting the brightest stars represented trade routes, and the broken lines represented routes to less-traveled stars. Although Hypnosis was able to provide the Hills with an insight as to what might have happened to them during their missing time period, the information they provided was not necessarily accurate. Before Simon began the Hypnosis sessions, he made sure that they understood that Hypnosis doesn't necessarily lead to objective truth. It reveals the truth as the subject perceives it to be. Therefore, the information revealed under hypnosis may or may not be consistent with objective reality. Experts in the field of psychology are aware of the limits of hypnosis when it comes to using it to retrieve lost information, 
because trance subjects have a difficult time differentiating between real and imagined information, and some subjects have been known to experience trance-induced hallucinations. In addition, when something doesn't make sense to a person, their mind can replace the confusing elements with things that they can accept. One problem with Dr. Simon's hypnosis sessions is that from the start, he believed that Barney had unconsciously used the details from Betty's dreams as fantasy material to fill in the missing time. As a result, he sometimes used suggestions and leading conversations to coax the couple into accepting that their abduction experience may not have been real. Dr. Simon may also have unintentionally put suggestions in their head about the experience. For example, during the first session, Betty told him that the aliens put a needle into her navel and that the needle had a wire coming out of it. A few weeks later, Simon asked, About this needle, is there anything attached to it like a wire or a tube? Betty didn't immediately respond to this question, so later in that same session he asked her again, Did you say something was attached to it like a wire or a tube? Betty finally answered, Like a tube even though earlier she said that a wire was coming out of it. So it's possible that she was unconsciously trying to satisfy the doctor by telling him what she thought he wanted to hear. Although Dr. Simon tried his best to make the Hills realize that everything they remembered about the event under hypnosis might just be a fantasy or a dream that they had forgotten, the couple insisted that they were absolutely certain that their experience was real. In an interview, Barney dismissed the theory that he was influenced by Betty's dreams. He suggested that Betty would have had to talk in her sleep in full sentences for this to happen. He admitted to being present when Betty discussed her dreams with scientists and military personnel during the investigation, but he reasoned it this way. He said, This is much like saying that if you were hypnotized after having talked to me or listened to me, that you would have gone off and relived the same experience that I'm telling you. It's incredible, the dream theory. The Hills were adamant that the memories they recalled under hypnosis were real, and there's a good reason for this. One study suggests that while hypnosis doesn't necessarily help people recall the details of past events more accurately, it does lead them to become more confident in memories they generate while under hypnosis. Unfortunately, this means that people who recall false memories while under hypnosis will insist that they are real memories even after the truth is revealed to them. Betty and Barney never wanted publicity about their UFO encounter, but word leaked out after they spoke about their experience to a small group at their local church. After they turned down a reporter's request for an interview, he published a story without their permission or input. On October 25, 1965, the Boston Traveler newspaper ran the headline, UFO Chiller, Did They Seize the Couple? The Hills weren't prepared for the circus-like atmosphere that was to follow. The media surrounded their home and their telephone rang nonstop. A London newspaper even ran a five-day-long series of articles about their UFO encounter. Betty was hounded at work by reporters hoping to photograph her on the job, but luckily the office she worked at turned them away. 
When Betty and Barney arrived home one night, there were so many reporters surrounding the house that the couple fled to a local restaurant hoping to get some privacy. But they were shocked when people started coming up to them and asking for their autographs. Because the newspaper articles contained so much false information, the Hills decided that they needed to discuss the UFO sightings publicly to set the record straight. In 1966, a book was published about the couple's ordeal. It was called The Interrupted Journey. The book was a collaborative work between author John Fuller, The Hills, and Dr. Simon. The Interrupted Journey quickly made its way to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was in print from 1966 until 1988, and eventually sold nearly 300,000 copies worldwide. Actor James Earl Jones purchased the film rights to the book, which resulted in the two-hour made-for-television movie The UFO Incident, which ran on NBC in 1975. The movie starred James Earl Jones as Barney and Estelle Parson as Betty. Now, one thing that's rarely covered in reports about the Hill's experience is the paranormal activity that followed. One day in January 1966, Betty and Barney heard the front door open, then heard someone stomp their feet and walk up the stairs. When they investigated, they found that the door was still locked and no one was upstairs. The couple had been renting out apartments on the second floor, but all were vacant at the time. Once, they heard the closet door opening and closing and the water turning on and off in one of the empty apartments. Sometimes they would go upstairs to check on the apartments and find that all of the lights were on, and once, a light turned off by itself when they were both in the room. Oddly enough, Betty's family members also started having strange occurrences in their homes. In one instance, four witnesses saw an outer storm door open, followed by the interior door opening. Then the family cat walked in, and both doors closed behind it. On another occasion, a car pulled into the driveway of a different family member. The family looked out the window and saw a man standing by the car. He lit a cigarette then just stood there. No one knew who the man was, but they assumed he was coming to the door. When he didn't arrive, eight witnesses went looking for him, but both the car and the man were gone, even though no one had heard him drive away but they were shocked to see a bright ball of light hovering 10 to 20 feet above the driveway. They watched in amazement as it traveled across the street, through a neighbor's yard, then disappeared behind a garage about 100 feet away from where they stood. This was just the first of many strange bright orbs witnessed by Betty's family members and others. One misconception about the Hills is that they had only one UFO encounter. In fact, the couple claimed to have had many subsequent sightings. In April of 1966, Betty wrote in a letter, Barney and I go out frequently at night for one reason or another. Since last October, we've seen our friends on the average of eight or nine times out of every ten trips. One night, six witnesses and I watched for 45 minutes while one came out over a lake and performed for us by maneuvering at different heights, different flight patterns, different lighting effects, 
and then it met with a second one for a few minutes before they took off in different directions. The couple also claimed to have spotted UFOs one day while trying to retrace their trip through the White Mountains. With them that day were Betty's parents, who also witnessed the sighting. Betty said, One moved around the mountain in front of us about 50 feet from the ground. Its light dimmed out, and we could see the rows of windows before it became invisible. It just faded out of sight. On the opposite side of the highway was a second one, which also faded out. Betty took photos of the crafts she spotted, but on film, they just appeared as bright spots of light against a dark background. On February 25, 1969, Barney died of a cerebral hemorrhage at the age of 46. That same year, a woman named Marjorie Fish contacted Betty. She expressed an interest in attempting to identify the location of the area depicted in the star map that Betty drew under hypnosis. Although Fish was an elementary teacher, she was a member of Mensa, which meant that she was extremely intelligent. Fish worked tirelessly on the project. Using beads of different colors hung on nylon strings, she developed a three-dimensional rendering of Betty's star map. In 1972, her dedication finally paid off when she was able to identify the stars as being located in an area of the Zeta Reticuli star system. Fish's findings were exciting to the scientific community, and many astronomers agreed that the planets around the stars on Betty's map were those that could sustain life. Although many scientists were excited by Fish's discovery, others disputed her findings, and the debate about the star map continues to this day. In 1977, the dress Betty was wearing the night of the abduction was analyzed by the chemistry department at the University of Cincinnati. Those who examined the dress were unable to reproduce the color change of the fabric. The leftover powder that was found on the dress contained traces of copper, calcium, silicon, magnesium, and iron. One of the chemists concluded that the powder substance is strange in relation to its inorganic elemental content. It appears to be high in undetermined organic hydrocarbons. In 2020, another test was run on the dress which revealed traces of tellurium and rhodium. The researchers were amazed to find these elements on the dress, as both are rare and expensive. Tellurium is extremely rare on Earth, but is more common in the universe. Rhodium is one of the rarest and most valuable precious metals on Earth. There is absolutely no explanation on how these elements ended up on Betty's dress. In 1975, Betty retired from work due to health issues. Her retirement allowed her to focus on UFO studies, and she eventually formed a group who kept an eye out for UFO activity in New Hampshire and who reported directly to her. Unfortunately, Betty wasn't interested in collecting evidence and began publicizing her findings that large groups of UFOs were seen flying in squadrons over New Hampshire. The UFO community began publishing very critical articles about Betty's observations, but the media was fascinated with her reports. Betty eventually retired from the UFO field and focused her energy on political, social, and intellectual interests. On October 17, 2004, 
Betty died of lung cancer. To this day, no one has been able to give a satisfactory explanation of what happened to Betty and Barney Hill on the night of their UFO sighting. Some believe that they had a shared hallucination brought about by the stress of being an interracial couple at a time when such unions were discriminated against. But the couple said that their friends, families, co-workers, and their community were warm, friendly, and accepting. What's more, the idea of a shared hallucination simply defies logic. Although shared psychotic disorder is an actual type of mental illness, the Hills didn't exhibit any of the signs of this disorder. It wasn't that one of them was trying to convince the other about the UFO encounter. They had a shared experience at the exact same time, and they were simply trying to make sense of it by discussing it together as anyone would. Skeptics point out that the creatures the Hills described resembled an alien character in an episode of the Outer Limits television show. The episode was called The Bolero Shield, but the couple rarely watched television, and they had never seen the show. The creature on the show doesn't look exactly like the picture an artist drew based on Betty and Barney's description, but it does bear a resemblance to it. But it's important to keep in mind that their description was given under hypnosis, so it may not be based on actual memories. Maybe they did catch a glimpse of the TV show while flipping through the channels one night, and their mind used that image to fill in what they couldn't remember or comprehend. It's also possible that the artist saw the TV show and that his sketch was unconsciously based on it. Some say that the pregnancy test that Betty described under hypnosis closely resembled a scene from the 1953 movie Invaders from Mars. At one point in the film, a woman is placed on an examination table and a long needle that's attached to a machine comes out of a tube. Betty denied having seen the movie. But again, even if she had inadvertently seen that portion of the film, it would only mean that her mind used that visual image to fill in what actually happened to her on the examination table. It's worth noting that the creatures in the film didn't in any way resemble the ones Betty described under hypnosis, and no other parts of the film were similar to her experience. Since nearly 90% of those polled believe that information recalled under hypnosis is accurate, the public tends to focus almost exclusively on the Hill's hypnotic-induced memories. They pay less attention to the physical evidence of the strange circular marks on the trunk that cause the compass to spin wildly, Betty's torn dress and the unusual pink powder it had on it, Barney's scuffed shoes the watches that stopped working and never worked again, the torn binocular strap, and the other sighting of an identical craft that same night. After Betty's death, the University of New Hampshire received a collection of artifacts related to the abduction case. This includes correspondences, personal journals and essays, manuscripts, newspaper clippings, photographs, slides, films, and audio tapes. They also have the dress that Betty wore on the night of the abduction and a ceramic bust of an alien which was sculpted according to Betty's description of the alien leader. On September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill experienced something that not only changed their lives but opened the world's eyes to the possibility of alien abductions. The Hill story continues to fascinate the public to this very day. The documentary 
Alien Abduction, The Odyssey of Betty and Barney Hill was released in 2013, and a TV series is in the works based on the 2007 book Captured, The Betty and Barney Hill Experience. In 2021, the U.S. released a long-awaited report on a series of unidentified flying objects seen passing over restricted military airspace. It is the first time that the U.S. government has publicly acknowledged that the military is not only aware of UFOs, but that trained pilots and other military personnel have witnessed the events, and they have video footage to prove it. Maybe now, some new information will be released about the Hills case that will shed some light on their story. Until then, watch the skies. Watch the skies.